the vital teaching that is in here. And, and this teaching that is in here is, was not just vital for the Corinthians, but as we look at it now, as we see what it says to us now, we realize how important it is for a time like now. We, we're living in a time that's so similar to what the Corinthians were going through. You see, the, the respective roles of men and women within church life, within family life, were a matter of controversy. And that's what was happening back then in Corinth. And that's what partly, wholly in some ways, Paul is addressing now. You see, right now, across the world, and you haven't seen it so much in Africa yet, but you will see it, the church is suffering from what is being called toxic masculinity. And that, that's seen in both perceived and actual godless, underlying godless, misogynistic leadership. Men thinking that they are more important than women, to put it in short. And also the church is suffering from a kickback against that. Not just in, in feminism, which I'm going to hold a neutral stance to, but toxic feminism. And that's seen both perceived in actual godless kickback against male leadership. It is, in short, females thinking that they're more important than men. And 1 Corinthians 11 shows us that this problem is not a new problem. And it seems like some of these ladies in Corinth, they were intelligent, enthusiastic believers, but in their intelligence and in their enthusiasm and in their zeal to serve the Lord, they were claiming that they had equal status with men within areas of church life that they didn't have or shouldn't have, as we will see as the passage opens up. And, and some men were happy to go along with this in displays of what we could call gender confusion and elements of idolatry. Now, Paul doesn't question their motive in this passage, but he does explain to them gently and carefully and with the full weight of apostolic authority that they are wrong. And so I want us to look and see, firstly, what this passage has to say to the Corinthians then. And then I want us to apply it to what it means to us now. And we've got so much going on here and so much to go through that I think in reality I'm just going to be able to go through what this means to the Corinthians and then outline the application, what it means to us. And then next week, God willing, we'll go into that application in more detail. And so to help us through the passage, I'm going to uh, break it down, break the passage down into five parts. So please follow me with these, these five parts, and hopefully this will help us understand what the passage is saying. Now, as we're going through, I'm sure there will be questions coming into your mind. And what I'm hoping is, as we go through this sermon, those questions will be answered. But what I encourage you to do is, rather than just saying, he is wrong, write the question down, and follow through what God's Word is saying to us. And then, if you still feel like that, 
we can talk about it, we can pray about it, and we can look into it in, in more detail. But the first thing I want us to note is the principle. Verses 2 to 4, the principle. Now, the, the letter of the Corinthians is a really hard-hitting letter, and it's Paul, in many situations, calling out the church's problems. But here, he starts off by pointing to something good. In contrast to, to, to later on, in this same chapter, where he says, uh, I do not commend you, he says here at the beginning, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. That word traditions could be preaching, teaching. Paul's preaching and teaching had been remembered by the Corinthians, and in the most part it had been practiced. And this is the most rewarding thing that you can do for a preacher or teacher. If, if you want to encourage a pastor, if you want to encourage a preacher or teacher, it doesn't really matter what you say on the way out, yes? You can smile nicely, you can say, great sermon, you can say thank you, yeah? You can say, that was amazing, that was awesome, good job, yeah? That, that's nice to hear, but that's not what really excites a pastor. What excites someone who preaches is to see God's Word working in your heart and your life and changing you. And that's what's happening here. And he was excited by this. He was excited that they saw these people maintaining the teaching that had been delivered to them. But there's a principle here that he taught that he wants them to understand. He wants them to understand something. He wants them to hold something. And in verse 3, he, he brings this principle. And it's set out like this in verse 3. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of the the head of Christ is God. And so Paul is introducing and wanting the Corinthians to understand the principle of headship. Yeah? It's not the principle of hat wearing. It's not the principle of head covering. It's not the principle of what your hair looks like. It is the principle of headship. And he brings three classifications of headship there, if you like. He starts off with saying, the head of every man is Christ. The head of every man is Christ. And then he moves on and says, the head of a wife is a husband. Now this is how the ESV has translated it. It said, the head of a wife is a husband. Uh, maybe if you've got a different translation in front of you, you'll see there that the head of a woman is a man. Yep, with a slight different emphasis there. Now, in reality, that word there, the, 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 the original Greek word that's used there, is a word that's used interchangeably between man and husband and woman and wife. So we can't say the ESV is wrong and the other version is right. We can't say the other version is right and the ESV is wrong. But we have to be aware of this. There's this principle here that, that the head of a wife is a husband. And I think we're going to emphasize wife and husband in this situation because we know elsewhere in God's Word that exact same principle has been taught. And we know that every man is not the head of every woman, full stop. 
And if you get some man proclaiming that he is the head of every woman, he has got it wrong. And he is misogynistic, and he is a toxic male, and he is not being biblical. But also we have to remember here, very clearly, that God has given a role to the husband, and he is the head, he has a responsibility, he has a different role to the wife. And then the head of Christ is God. So we have a sandwich, don't we? We have the deity, Christ, head of man, and then we have the head of the wife, the husband, and then we have, coming back to Christ, the head of Christ is God, the Father. And in verse 3, Paul just delivers this as a principle. It's the principle he wants them to understand. He doesn't make any explanation at this stage. But I want to make a couple of observations that I think are helpful to us. And we need to hold on to these. True biblical headship does not equate to status. We think of headship as the status. We think of the head of a company as a status. We think of a head teacher as a status. Now, it's, it, it, it's not in a biblical sense. It is a role. You see, God the Father is no more God and has no more importance than Jesus. But God the Father's role is different to that of Jesus. Yeah? When, we, when we explore the Trinity, when we explore the doctrine of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we see from God's Word that they're equal. We see that they're equally God. They're all God. No less God than the other. One is not more important than the other, but the role is different. So true biblical headship is not about status. It is about role and responsibility. And if Jesus was not willing to submit to the headship of God, we wouldn't be here now. Because it was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus showed his submission to God the Father and he didn't want to go through the pain and the agony. And he said, remove this cup from me if it's possible. But not my will be done, but yours. Jesus was no less God than God the Father at that moment. He is God. They are God in an amazing sense. And yet, Jesus showed his submission to God the Father. Biblical headship is about a role, not status. Now, all mankind is under the headship of Christ. All mankind is under the headship of, of God. And, and sometimes I think people think of this and look at this and say, oh yes, the women are a less inferior species because it talks here about the special relationship of uh, the man being under Christ and then Women being, and we've got a little diagram chart, men's there, and women's there. Now, that's not what's going on here. You see, in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Both males and females come under the authority of God. So that's a flat line. So that's it. Uh, and so we need to remember that, and it'll come out more clearly as we go through it, all mankind is under the headship of Christ, under the headship of God. And then I've mentioned this already, that the word wife in the ESV is often translated as woman in other, virgin, other versions. <coughs> but there's a special sense 
in this passage that the husband is the head of the wife in a marriage setting and some men are the head of women in the leadership setting of the church. And we'll come on to that in more detail when we go on to the rest of Corinthians because Paul addresses that in, in more uh, detail. That there are roles within the church that are particularly given to a man and there's roles within the church that are particularly for uh, a female. Now, why does God want to remind the Corinthians of this teaching? Well, he goes on to talk about this in his application to the Corinthians, or his application in verses 4 to 6. So our second point, the application. And so, from the context, it would seem that some men were prophesying and praying in a public setting with a head covering on and from the context, it would seem that some women were praying and prophesying without a head covering on in, in an act of public worship. Now today, we're not going to get into the ins and outs of prophecy. That's for another time. That will come. Don't worry, we're going to get there. But what I just want to say with regard to this is in the context of public worship and in the context of participation within the within public worship of people openly praying and uh, prophesying, openly sharing God's word. And so in that setting, there were some men who were having their heads covered, and there were some ladies who were not having their heads covered. And that was a problem then. And to Paul, and to the first century of Christians, and the people reading this book originally, they'd have understood it. They'd have got it immediately. Because their culture understood what was going on. It understood the, 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 what was happening. It would be very apparent to them that this, the men wearing a head covering and the ladies not wearing a head covering was a symptom of not understanding the principle of biblical headship. That would be clear to those people there then, but it's not clear to us now because we're 2,000 years on, our culture is totally different, the way we wear our clothes is totally different, the way we've been taught in secular society is totally different. So many things are totally, totally different that it seems rather weird to us. But the fact of the matter was, back then, a lady who was not covered in that setting of worship and the man that was covered in that setting of worship was not following the principles of biblical headship. Now, we'll see this as it comes out. You see, some of the ladies and the men within the church at Corinth were acting outside of the male-female headship roles that Paul has set out, which is the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so very, in short, in very sort of succinct terms, Paul, through this passage here, told the men to have short hair and not cover their heads in public worship. And Paul told the ladies to have long hair and to cover their heads in public worship. Now, by wearing a head covering, or having long hair, a Corinthian man was acting in a way that was showing he was not under the authority of Christ. Not wearing, by, 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 by wearing a head covering, 
he was doing something that God didn't want him to do, and culture would tell him that, and he would know that. By having long flowing female hair, he would know, and the culture would know, and people would know, that he was doing something that was not showing he was submitting to God. Similarly, uh, a woman, by not wearing a head covering or having short hair, was a, <coughs> a lady acting in the way that she was not under the authority of Christ because she was not under the headship of man. And so that, that there may well have been cultural reasons why this head covering was symbolized what it did then. And there are masses, absolutely masses of commentary on this. And, and, and so much evidence has been brought and refuted and, and put forward that it's mind-boggling. I don't think I've had to read or listen to so much in a preparation for a sermon. I have for a long, long time. There's just this mass of this to, to go through. And, and what we can say in some ways, well, the passage is silent. But there are a couple of things that, that does do help. And at that time, the general consensus is that most women, most everyday women, as a mark of respect to their husband and society, wore a head covering. Now, when I emphasize most normal women, there has been art of rich women without head coverings on. And, and people have said, well, that means that they didn't really wear head coverings. They, they did, because normally it was. And there's writings that say normally they did. And in fact, these rich ladies were pushing the boundaries of culture to say, look at me. I'm important. And that, that's where the danger here was happening, was within the church, the ladies were taking off their head coverings and saying, look at me, I'm important. They're taking the teaching of God to say that we are equal, we are one, there's no male, no female, and taking it to a degree which God doesn't want us to take to, and saying, look at me, I am equal. And, that's, and, and then there was the sign of femininity, of, of long hair, and ladies that were cutting out their hair short, or, or not wearing their veil, were basically saying, we're masculine. We're taking on a gender role that's not ours. In, in, in Roman pagan worship, in Roman pagan worship, the male priests would have had a head covering on. And they'd have a head covering on as homage to the pagan god. And so it would be seen that a man within a church setting wearing a head covering was doing something that was pagan was doing something that was showing homage to a pagan god and not to the Lord. And a man that was wearing his hair long and flowing was looking effeminate and being female. Now, now Paul doesn't elaborate on the cultural understanding of the point, but he uses the example of the head covering and he uses the example of the hair, loin, the hair to point back to the reason for this principle. So what we have to remember is we have to remember this principle. This principle is important to us. Now, the principle is that Christ is the head of every man. Or the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is a husband. The head of Christ is God. That's the principle. And he brings that principle and says the application 
for the Corinthians at that time was this head covering issue. But then he brings it to a reason from creation. So verses 7 and 10 talk about a reason from creation. It's our third point, a reason from creation. Verse 7 starts leading us in this way. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Now, I know immediately, for some of you, you're going to think, too right, we are the glory of God. And that's a wrong masculine attitude. And for some of you, you may be thinking, I don't like this, we're not for the glory of God, we're for the glory of man. No, we don't want this, yes? And again, that is not the right attitude. We need to take a step back. We're not talking about culture. We're not talking about what your head thinks about what is fair and what is right. This is what God is saying. And so it's difficult. So we need to understand it. And we we know from God's word that God is not saying something that we could pull out of this that's not there. Paul is not saying that God made man just man in his image. Paul is not arguing against Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, which we showed the children. If you remember that verse, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This mandate goes right back to creation. And right back in creation, God created male and female, and he made no mistakes. He looks back on it and he says, This is very good. Not just good, it is very good. And and he made male, and then he made females. God created man first. Now if you don't like that, you can take that up with God. Yeah? And I'm saying that genuinely, I mean that genuinely. It might sound flippant, but God is the creator, yes? And as God the creator, that's what he did. Now, when you get to heaven, you have an eternity to ask him why, if you want to. If that's still a burning issue in your heart at that stage. But this is where it is at. And God, the creator, made male and female in his image. He made them equally male and female. He made them equal in that sense. But he created man first. And when he created man, he gave man work to do. Work didn't happen after the fall. Work happened before the fall. Work happened as the first thing that God does. He looks on this creation that he's made. He looks on this amazing creation. He thinks, hmm, the monkeys can't look after themselves. The trees need taken care of. And in his plan, he had man to do that. A man was made to work. Man was made to be physical. Man was made to take care And there was this garden for this man to physically take care of. And Adam pops out. He's breathed into existence out of the mud. God breathes into him. Totally different creation to the others. God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. And then when it came to man, he molds man. He creates man out of the clay. He breathes life into man. And man pops up and Adam looks. He's got a job to do. Look after these animals. Look after this garden. Nurture it. Make sure that it grows. And he gave him a command as well at that same stage. He was not there yet. He gave him a command. 
There's one fruit. You mustn't eat that tree, that fruit. One commandment. Only one commandment. It's perfect. In this perfect garden. With a perfect job. And, and, and one commandment. And God looks on at this man in this new role. And he goes, she's not complete. There's something missing. There's something that this man needs. And, and, and in Genesis 2, 18, it tells us, he says, as God looks on, he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And he creates, and this is God's word, and this is God's language, a helper. Not a servant. Absolutely not. And that's wrong. Not a slave, but a helper. The picture language of, of, of someone who is coming alongside and can, can complement. So, so this man who is made to, to do work, who's got the physical ability to look after this garden, is given a woman. And this woman is given the ability to, guess what? Bear children. If Adam had been left without Eve, we wouldn't be here because there'd be no human race. And if Eve was the only one, there'd be no human race. Adam needs Eve, and Eve needs Adam. They complement each other. And, and, and Paul makes commentary on Genesis chapter 2, verses 20-24, in, in, in verses 8 and 9, here in Corinthians 11. And he said, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And this is God's order. This is what God did. And we might not like it, but it, it goes on to clarify it later. So don't, don't let's get stressed about this just yet. Let's see what the whole of the passage is saying. But God made Adam first, and saw that Adam had a need, and saw that Adam was missing someone, and Adam, then God made Eve. And Eve was brought together, and the complement of the two together meant that they could have children. The complement of the two together meant that Adam could look after the garden in a better way than he did before. He was complete before he wasn't. And then the coming together of these two made them complete. But God made Adam first, and God gave Adam the tasks and the task was to take care of the garden, and the task was not to eat the fruit of the tree. He had a responsibility. Now, who told Eve that? Whose job was it to educate Eve? Whose job was it to guide Eve? It was Adam's job, because God had given Adam that role of headship and responsibility to take care of his wife. And his wife was there to take care and look after him. And she had a role to do things that he cannot do, bear children. And he needs her. And she needs him. And it's beautiful. And as Matthew Henry said it over 300 years ago, so, so beautifully, he said, he made, her not, he made Eve not out of his head to rule over him. Not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him. But out of his side to be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be beloved by him. Beautiful picture language there in the creation, isn't it? Why didn't God just make another clay model and breathe life into it? Because God had got a plan and God had got a purpose. And instead he puts 
Adam to sleep and takes a rib out and does a miracle and brings this beautiful woman into his life. And then Paul goes on after saying, for neither did not come from a woman, a man didn't come from a woman, but a woman from a man. Neither was a man created for a woman, but a woman for a man. And then he goes on and said, that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, I'd love it if there's a full stop there, but there's not. And he just throws this curveball in and says, because of the angels. We'll get to the angels in a minute. But, but some, some, some translations and some, some scholars say that this idea of a symbol of authority on her head is wrong. And it should read, she has authority over her own head. Now, the, the, the difference is subtle, but the difference is huge. So the one translation is saying that she should wear a covering. There should be a symbol of authority on her head. And then the other one is saying that she has authority, she has autonomy, she has independence over her own head. Now, in honesty, I'm not qualified linguistically to say to you emphatically from my own knowledge which is which, which is right. But of all the reading that I've done, of all the research that I've looked into, the argument that I'm most convinced by is that it is a symbol of authority. That works best with the context, that works best with the original languages, that works best with the whole of biblical theology as I see it. So that's what we're running with. Because of her being created after him, because of God giving her to him, because of his role of being a leader and a carer and a provider and a headship to her, the wife should have a symbol of authority over her. And then it says, because of the angels. And, and there's some amazing ideas that come out here. One that I quite like is the actual word for angel means messengers. And someone would say, well, actually, that doesn't mean physical angels with wings. This means visitors to the churches. So people visiting the churches, we want to set them a good example. Well, that's nice, but it doesn't actually work with the language. And then someone brings in lustful angels. Apparently in these people's minds, the angels lust over ladies who haven't got hats on. Where that comes from, from the context of the Bible, I don't know. It was someone's imagination. Some of the people said that one day men and women will judge the angels, and because the women will judge the angels, that's why... Uh, they need to have their house in order beforehand. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, on this passage, he just stopped reading it, and then he stopped, and he said, wow. When we are praying together in public worship, the angels are watching. The angels are witnessing this. The angels are here, and the angels could be offended if God isn't honoured with proper displays of order and worship. We may differ on this, but that, that's what I believe is going on here. God has given an order of how we should worship. God has given us a decree of how we should behave in church. And if we're not doing that, we offend the angels. 
And it's not just men that can offend, females that can offend angels, it's men that can offend angels too. And it's not just singling out one or the other that's underlying that point. But the big deal from creation is not the angels. It's not that last bit of the sentence that can get us confused. The big deal here is God made man and woman in his own image. And they have equal value before God. But they've been given different roles. They've been given different roles because they've been given different jobs. They're both under God's authority. Us all here as children, as humans, as beings, we are under God's authority. Man is under the authority of Christ. And then the wife is under the authority of her husband. And worship and church life, the woman is under the man's authority or the man who has been given that task. Not all men's authority, but the person who has been given that task for that. And so creation is where this comes from. But in verses 11 to 12, there's a warning. There's a warning here. And, and right now, it's really counterculture to preach this passage faithfully. Because the church has been accused of toxic masculinity. The church has been accused of misogynistic patriarchy. The, 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 the church has been accused of all sorts of things. In the UK, the church is afraid of cancer, cancel culture and, and the culture coming out against them. And so this often, this passage isn't taught properly because people are afraid of it. And I think Paul could see that there could be a problem here. Paul realized that men could take this too far in the wrong direction and females could take this too far in the wrong direction. And then Paul wants to remind the Corinthians and remind us of something really important. As male and females, we need each other. We need each other. We need each other and we shouldn't pretend or act like each other because we are not each other. A female is a female created in God's image to be a female. And to take the role that God has given females. And a male has been created by God to be a male. And he's been given that role and those abilities to be a male. And the church gets so messed up when he thinks the church thinks that a male or a female is more important. And this, the pendulum swings as culture moves. And you have a time when misogynistic men get their own wicked way and it's wrong and it's sinful. It's not as Christ expected it to be. And it swings the other way when females take the roles that they shouldn't have. And then they push back and they kick back on what God says is right. And it's wrong. And both these things are wrong. And Paul is saying that there's a line here to be walked upon. And we need to remember this. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of the man. Nor is man independent of woman. It's a two-way thing here. It is perfect harmony here. You see, I think sometimes we get so upset and stressed by the first few verses, we don't get to this. We don't get to realizing that Paul knew that there could be real problems here. And there are real problems here in the church now. 
There is equality of value between the male and the female. There's an equality of needing each other between the male and the female. The man needs the woman and the woman needs the man. The church needs godly men. The church needs godly women. They need them to, to come together. Toxic masculinity and toxic femininity have no part in the church. And we need to, to celebrate and not mess with the two diversities of the two genders, the two genders that God created. We need to submit to God and the gender and the gender roles that he gave. That's the way it is. That's counterculture, yeah? Culture tells you to decide what you want. And that culture is coming into the church and it's wrong. It's godless. What God is saying here to us, we all, male or female, first and foremost, need to submit to God. God our Father, our Creator. And He created some of you females, and He created some of us males. And we need to submit to the fact that there are males and there are females, and God created them. And it's good that He created them like that. And we need to then submit to the roles that he, that God, assigned to males and females. You see, men need to be men and act as men and be the men that God intended. In England, there's a tragedy within the church. And it's become effeminate. And you go in and there's more ladies in the church than men. And the men that are there, you couldn't punch them on the chin. They couldn't stand up to be instructed. They couldn't do a solid day's work. Uh, not all of them, obviously. Forgive me. But that's a stereotype. That's what I want. And, and, and Paul is screaming out and saying, Men, be men. Have your hair short. Grow your beards properly. Have big muscles. Take care of your woman folk. Stand up. Be counted. Be a man. Similarly, he turns to the woman and say, Woman, act as woman. Be the woman that God intended you to be. God doesn't want to, a woman to be wandering around looking like or acting like a man. And God doesn't want a man to be wandering around looking like or acting like a woman. That's not as God intended it to be. This is what this passage is screaming out to us. And, and we both, male and female, need to look at the roles that we take in marriage. And look at the roles that we take in church life. And they must be in keeping with how God, how God created and commissioned us. This isn't made up by somebody. It's been abused by people for sure. But in the perfection as it was made by God, there's a beauty here. You see, we have to see this in the context of Ephesians 5. And let me quote to you from verse 25. We, we've heard about women submitting, and oh, it's a bit of pain, this. And then we hear this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. Submission comes at a cost. Friends, it comes at a cost. 
for us to take this passage and apply it into our lives, it comes at a cost. It is counterculture. But God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Jesus so loved the people that God the Father had given to him that he went to the cross. He humbled himself. He came to this earth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was nailed to the tree. That was the cost of submission for Christ. Christ was submitting to God the Father. And as he was submitting to God the Father, there was a cost upon him. But the price that he paid was our salvation. The church has been bought. You have been redeemed. You've been brought into God's family. And as such, God the Father says to the husbands, love your wives. And in loving your wife, you are submitting to the Lord. In loving your wife as Christ loved the church and be willing to give your life up, you're doing things as God intended. And the wife's love for her husband and the submission to God, her father, should make her willing to respect her husband's leadership. And the church should honour the roles that God has given males and females. And then he wraps it up. Verses 13 to 16, and there's, there's an appeal to, to nature, an appeal to the practice of the church. 15, 16 times in, in the New Testament, Paul uses this word nature, and 15 of the times he's referring to the unchangeable created reality. Now, the creation that we spoke about before is what we call the creation mandate or the creation order. But this is just looking at a principle, a principle for long hair and short hair for men seen in nature. Now, apparently, it's biologically proven, and perhaps I'm to that fact, that ladies' hair normally grows longer than men's. It's due to oestrogen. It takes longer to grow, but it grows longer. Uh, and men are much better at going bald than women. Uh, and going bald for a man doesn't hold the same issues as it was for a woman. Ask Will Smith. <laughs> but there's a reality here, yeah? We, we laugh, but that's culture. We know from nature that it's not right. Women have long hair, men have short hair. We see it all around us. And Paul's just underlining that. It's a covering. It shows differences. Paul is saying there's a difference because God made us different. And because God made us different, he has the right to say what we're to do and what we're not to do. And man has this role and woman has that role. And it's clear. And then Paul turns around and says, look, all the churches, all the churches do this. All the churches around do this. Let's not be contentious about it. And so very, very quickly to wrap up, and we're going to come back to this section. Where does that leave us now? So that, was, that was the Corinthians time. And, and, and now, where does that leave us now? Apart from out of time, I've got three minutes to quickly go over the, the main points. And then next week we'll come back to them. The headship of Christ should be seen in the church. If someone comes in here and looks at LPC, they should realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of this church. Not a man, not a woman. Not at the congregation. But Jesus Christ is the head. And so we need to work out as a church, how do we show that headship? How is that headship practically shown so people can see it? 
And you see, God's word needs to be obeyed in spite of the culture of the day. So often churches bow and kowtow to the culture. Oh, we can't say this, we can't do that. No, we have to do what God's word says because Christ is the head of the church. So we have to ask ourselves here at LPC, are the things that we are doing that we shouldn't be doing? And are the things that we are not doing that we should be doing? What shows Christ's headship? And we need to honour the God-given genders to male and female. And the specific gender roles that God has applied to them. That's applying God's word. There are two genders, male and female. And God has applied roles to those agendas just as God the Father has a role himself and the Holy Spirit has a role himself and Jesus had a role role himself. We shouldn't be ashamed of those roles that God has given us. Men need to be manly. I long to see, I like seeing manly men at LPC. A man that can do a, a, a day's work, whether that be with his intellect or whether that be with a shovel. A man that's going to lay down his life for women and children. A man that's not just thinking selfishly about me, 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 but a man that's willing to give sacrificially. And we need womanly women. Women that look out for their men, look out for their young ones, look out for those around about them. And be beautiful. Why not? Be feminine. Absolutely. Be womanly. And we need men and women to submit to those that the Lord has placed over them. Whether they be male or female. But within the church family, it will be males the other pastors and the elders, and we'll come on to that later as we go through the book of Corinthians. And we need to demonstrate that submission in a biblical and culturally relevant way. And there's no place for toxic masculinity or toxic femininity, even as joking around within church. And there shouldn't be gender confusion within the church family because there's male and there's female and if there are those that are truly struggling with gender dysphoria then this place needs to be the safest place they can be it needs to be a place of love and help and care because they're not going to get it out there they need it in here. And that's what this passage is saying. And you're going to be asking me, what's it say about us wearing hats? What's it say about wearing coverings? Let's wait till next week. Let's pray. I'm going to pray, and I'm just 